1: Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkor, and more importantly, I have the, the, the pleasure and, and the honor today of inviting back to the podcast uh, Dr. Greg, Greg Bailey of La Trobe University, who is uh, a scholar of um, Sanskrit narrative literature, um, uh, a particular class of text in particular called the Puranas, um, ancient uh, compendia of teachings and lore, uh, and um Greg is a good colleague and friend and he's been publishing since before I was born and I'm not exactly young. <laughs> um uh, so so here we are welcome back to the podcast Greg.
0: Thanks very much Rob, good to be here again.
1: Yes, it was great actually seeing you in the flesh not too long ago in 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 Dubrovnik. It was lovely. It was. I'd never been before.
0: It Such was very city. good, and um, it's a good conference, and it was good to meet you again as well and sit down and relax and talk and exchange ideas. It's certainly very beneficial. There's no doubt about that.
1: Yeah, there's there's certain je ne sais quoi about conferences where ideas emerge from just being together. Well, so they
0: roughly. do. Yeah, they do, particularly over at the bar after the official proceedings have taken place during the day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the, 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 there are many sources of inspiration for the ideas, sometimes there it's are. in the glass for sure. Um, yep. So tell us a bit about this this, this particular Purana um, called the, 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 the Brahma Vaivarta Purana. What's its overall sort of gist or structure?
0: Well, the Brahma Vaivarta Purana consists of five books from memory. Um, I mean, I've only really looked at the Ganesha, Ganesha section and the Krishna section. And it has a section, the third one is on the fourth. It's five books. It's probably people dated to about the 14th to 15th century, but it's impossible to accurately date Puranas. The fact that it's in Sanskrit would have meant that it had a limited audience. though so parts of it would have been recited in vernacular languages. Now it seems to be very much concerned with birth narratives. So it has the Prakriti Kanda dealing with the goddess, then it has the um, Ganesha Kanda or the Ganapati Kanda. They're both the same name, dealing with Ganesha, dealing with the birth of Ganesha, and then the Krishna Janma Kanda dealing with the birth of Krishna. Now, Ganesha has been around had been around by the time This text has been composed probably for, um, I don't know, 1300 or 1400 years. He becomes a very popular deity in South India, in Maharashtra and so forth, probably from the 7th or 8th century, but I'm guessing here. Um, He initially is very popular as the son of Shiva and Parvati and in the Puranas, In this body of narrative literature, dealing with, especially with Shiva's mythology, we find extensive descriptions of Ganesha's birth from Parvati and his beheading. And he really, he normally never has a normal vaginal birth. It's always either from under um, Parvati's arm or from dust on a body. And there's four or five different accounts of this. In the classical myth of Shiva parvati in Ganesha, he is born and he's got a he's got a normal body. He does not yet have the elephant head, which marks him off as a unique deity in India. And one day Shiva goes in and wants to see parvati, probably to have sex or something like that, because this is very it's it's implied in all of these myths. And Ganesha is a young boy, standing, guarding the room where she's in and saying, no, no, you can't go in, you can't go in. So Shiva just goes bang with her and chops his head off like that. Parvati becomes extremely upset and um, really gets stuck into him verbally. And so Shiva goes out and cuts off the head of the first thing he sees, which is an elephant, and slaps it on Ganesha's head. Hence, Ganesha becomes the elephant-headed god. Now, the whole notion of animal-headed gods in India um, is significant. We mainly have Hanuman, Ganesha, and the man-lion, Avatara of Vishnu, Narasimha, but the of of these three, the most speculation about the head seems to be associated with Ganesha, and even in this in this Brahma Vairata Purana, we find bits and pieces of that. And in the Vaniya and another text about Ganesha, which I've translated, which has never been translated before, we find in, we find speculation about this. So it was clear that for Ganesha worshippers and those who transmitted his mythology and his theology. The the idea of the elephant head becomes very important indeed. We have to bear in mind that he has another brother, Skanda Karatekaya, whose myths are all also mentioned in the third book of the Mahabharata, and in fact come out again in these two texts. Now, in the case of the brahma Vivarata Purana the Ganesha Kanda really has nothing much original in it at all that is not found in earlier myths but I mean we get that all the time in the Puranas and um, I mean we could make a comparison of that with with so-called contemporary reality television in the West there's just continual um, repetition and the restructuring and 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 the the um, telling. Underneath the surface of the myths of neoliberalism, competitiveness, individualism, and so forth, very similar to what we find in these Puranic texts, where you get the same myths coming out but being reinterpreted with new elements being added into them at various times. <clears throat> in a way, it's the it's the devotional traditions recommunicating themselves to new generations all the time. But again, when one reads the Brahma Brahmavayavarata Purana, I just had a look at it again for this podcast. I hadn't looked at it for some time. One finds there's a lot of material in there about Krishna and the mother goddess. Parati, which is the name which means daughter of the mountain, is continually being called Durga, a goddess, which you'll know because of your work on the Devi Mahatmya, And she often gets very angry and very annoyed and so forth. And this is described in the text, and it's been suggested by other scholars. This is because the mother goddess was so important in late medieval Bengal, which is is almost certainly the case. And the relationship between Parati and Ganesha has always been a fraught one, not as fraught as between Shiva and Ganesha, but nonetheless, it's been difficult. And this has given rise to all sorts of um, speculation, psychological speculation, and so forth, particularly amongst American scholars about Oedipus complexes and this kind of thing. Now, the the other point is that all Puranas, operate on about three different, what we call, interlocutory levels. That is, who does the speaking, who does the telling. In the case of the the Ganesha Khandra, the Brahma-Vivarata, it's Narayana speaking to Narada. Narayana is a form of Vishnu, very important deity, of which um, Krishna is also an avatar. Narada is essentially a public nuisance. That is he's by saying that the word you could almost translate it as he who gives to humanity and is a messenger from the gods to humans. So within this context we get about four or five different myths being recited um, about the birth of Ganesha. Um, we have a very long version of the um, Rama, Jamaragni myth, that is Rama Jamaragni who um, gets into trouble with Arjuna Karataviri or a king who wants to steal his cow, Kapala, the cow of plenty, and who's involved in, in chopping his mother's head off and so forth. And in this particular version, which is about 15 chapters it's almost a third of the whole text it's essentially about how it is that Ganesha who has the elephant headed Got elephant head, with initially with two tusks, end up ends up having one tusk. And it's Rama Jamad Agnya who cuts the tusk off when he gets very annoyed and then gives it, and, and Shiva makes him give it back to Ganesha. And we know that there's a prominent myth that the Mahabharata itself was written down by Ganesha with one of his tusks. Um so, what we what what we um, what we find then in this particular throughout the theme running through, or one of several themes, dealing with Ganesha, is it's about the birth of Ganesha and how he acquires his particular appearances, with the help of deities like Krishna and the mother goddess and Shiva to a lesser extent, and in the initial chapters. Dealing with the birth of Ganesha, uh, we're told that Krishna, in fact, is Ganesha, so which is quite significant. Shiva and Parvati are, in fact, having sex and um, they get distracted by a Brahmin, Vishnu in disguise of a Brahmin who comes to the door wadding food, which is a very common motive in classical Indian literature, the interfering Brahmin. And Krishna's... Shiva's semen goes onto the bedspread and if they they forget about it because both of them are going out to um, satisfy this Brahman. Krishna comes along and mixes himself in it. So there's an interesting blend there of two deities, um, Krishna and Ganesha, to the extent that Krishna becomes, as it were, in this kind of theology, this... um, Krishna ideology becomes the power behind Ganesha himself, which is most interesting. And it's in addition, it's he or Vishnu who gives Ganesha the role of being the first to be worshipped at any puja, which we know every puja that's performed in India, and it's been the case probably a millennia, a um, obeisance has to be made to Ganesha. Why? Because Ganesha is the creator and destroyer of obstacles. And so, if you if you allude to Ganesha initially, and then you that um, form the perform the puja, it should be straightforward. It should go ahead quite easily without any problems at all. Now. In addition, what else we find? We find lots of stotras, um, hymns of praise to deities. Some of these are to the goddess, some to Krishna, some to Ganesha. We find in the first eight and nine chapters uh, descriptions of kavacha, that is K-A-V-A-C-A. A kavacha is a kind means armour, but it's it's like an armour based on words that you, in fact, can put, recite, which will, it's believed, protect you from all sorts of problems. And so this text, in addition to dealing with Ganesha's birth and his acquisition of his mixed animal-human form, it also contains a lot of devotional material about various about various deities, mother goddesses, Krishna, and so forth. And I think that that, in fact, was quite significant insofar as the authors of the text felt they probably had to integrate this particular deity, who must have been becoming popular in Bengal, West Bengal, into the, the existing mythology of Krishna and the goddess which would have been widely known one would anticipate amongst the
1: general public fascinating thank you for the the um the rundown of of the structure of the purana and some key themes of uh, the ganesha myth cycle tell us a bit about your process how long did it take you to translate the text What was that like
0: oh good question raj probably about a year or something like that i would think to translate it 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 has been translated before. So in that sense, if you find parts that are unclear, you can check up the earlier translations, which I did as, do as a matter of course, because you've got to respect what other people have done before you. And then you um, have to think and think again. A lot of it is straightforward. Though the problem I tend to have, I tend to translate too literally. And I think that in Sanskrit, as you will know, the passive form is used very very frequently in past and present tenses of verbs. And um, in English we use it much less. And I tend to leave it to some extent in the class in the Sanskritic way, syntactical manner, when it probably would should be translated into the into the active in English. But anyhow, to get back to it, now I had the Motilal text, the Motelal Banasadas in Delhi published it. They have been publishing a long series of translations of Puranas. It's very been very valuable, actually, because many of them have never been translated before. So I utilised their particular text, and you end up doing three or four drafts at least, because you try and go through and find out what the text is about in its entirety. Then you go back more slowly, giving a... A, more, a better rendering of individual chapters, then you put aside the really, you try and get everything done, but then you find difficult parts that no matter how hard you work, you can't get them. Um, to render satisfactorily in English, which means you probably don't understand it. <laughs> That's the reality. And we have to bear in mind that each individual Purana probably exists in, in hundreds of manuscripts. That is, from a pretty early period, from the 7th or 8th century onwards, there was a, a long tradition of copying, writing down, and copying manuscripts. I've seen people doing it in Tamil in South India, in Pondicherry, in, or no, in Madras, in the Adyar Library, still copying it down, doing it beautifully. Sometimes, and I've looked at manuscripts from the 16th to 18th century, the Ganesha Purana, which I translated. And you often find um, mistakes being made um, with footnotes being added and so forth. And there's often differences added on into these into these um, versions. And so the printed edition, probably starting from about the uh, mid 19th century, tries to to get some kind of um, established text, that is, a text that seems more accurate and goes back to an earlier period than a lot of the existing manuscripts. The problem with that, and we've seen it mainly in the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, in the so-called critical editions, which are very valuable, but they tend to present the text as something that's received a particular order, particular form that that we have to, um, uh, we have to recognise as being, respect as being more valid than other forms. But in fact, these were continual traditions that were evolving. And that's one of the problems, how to get in, in you can use footnotes in order to reflect different va- variants and, and different forms and so forth. And, in the introduction to the text, you have to try and work out intertextuality. That is, or you present intertextuality, where does the material that comes into the text initially derive from? And in the, the case of the Brahma Vaivarta and this Vinayaka Mahatmya, which is a much shorter version of certain Ganesha myths, many of them come from the Ganesha Purana. And the Mudgala Purana. There is two Ganesha Puranas. The about Ganesha, the Ganesha and the Mudgala. The Mudgala is that thick. It's huge, and nobody's. I've translated bits and pieces of it just my own, but it would take ten years at least to to translate the thing. And some of it's very difficult, indeed. But I think because of the length of these texts, particularly the Ganesha Purana, we find versions. We find abridged versions. In Tamil, there's the Tamil Vinayaka Purana, which contains a lot of the same kind of material. Also, this Brahma-Vivarta Purana contains material that's found in the Ganesha Purana and in the Mudgal Purana. The Vinayaka Mahatmya, which deals with eight of Ganesha's avatars, also draws most of its material from early texts. And one can see why, because it's much easier to recite something that's 46 chapters or 24 chapters in the case of the Vinayaka Mahatmya than something that's 250 chapters. And it makes it more accessible to have a shorter text, makes it more, more accessible. But again, back to translation problems. These inevitably are going to arise, arise in a language like Sanskrit, which is does have, of course, because it's an Indo-European connection, a language has connections with um, European languages. But the syntax and so forth is quite different in Sanskrit from English. English is one of the rare languages that doesn't have gender. Sanskrit has three genders and so forth. So one uses, for the Brahma Vaidharata, I used the bottle out edition. For the Vinayaka Mahatmya, I used a number of manuscripts and also a printed edition which i've included in the back of the back of the volume so it's time consu- it's time consuming and um not as easy as some as a lot of university administrators would think it would be <laughs>
1: <laughs> no it's it's painstaking work and it's difficult to convey to folks that even we scholars of the purana like can not really be a scholar of the Puranas. i mean uh, as a whole, they're va- I mean, of all of the Puranas, vast, vast, vast amount of texts, and you sort of focus on the ones that uh, are of most interest to you. And I'm currently trying to create a resource, a, a sort of a website, so we, mostly for we scholars, so we can see, you know, what do we have manuscripts for and where, what has been translated and when, you know, so it's sort of, I don't know, but I can't speak for you, but it's it's hard for me to keep in my head the state of uh, puranic scholarship in terms of what to find where. And and, and I I continually uh, forget and remember certain translations in various languages. I mean, what what do you, I mean, to my, in my experience, it's a, it's a little bit unwieldy for say a a grad student to say, I'm going to go and, you know, study the Puranas. It seems that we we could use a little bit of um, curation of the, of the existing content. Would you say?
0: I, yeah, I think that we've got a number of resources. We've got Veta Mani's Puranic Encyclopedia, which is mm. simply an alphabetical list of deities that occur there. We've got Ludo Rocher's very valuable book yeah, on the,
1: the Bible B- of Purana studies.
0: <laughs> yeah, published in 1986 uh, by Harasevitz in, in Germany. That is very useful for giving bibliographical material up to that time. And I remember talking to Rocher the first time I went to America about that, and he said that he was brought up in this conservative European tradition of textual history and so forth, just looking at layers of texts and how far back they go and what's been added. When he looked at the Piranhas and looked at a few manuscripts, he realised he had to change his methodology. But his book is extremely valuable because it gives description, descriptions of the 18. 18- Great large Puranas, Maha Puranas, as well as a lot of minor Puranas and gives us a useful bibliography. The other um, resource, yeah, the bibliography, I don't know, is the Epic and Puranic Bibliography, mm. started at the University of Tubingen. I don't, I don't seem to be able to get that on 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 its on its link now on the HTTPS number, but that's very valuable as well because that contains thousands of references and it gives summaries um, of many of the important articles and publications and that's certainly a very val- very valuable resource indeed um, but what's happened since then in the last 10 years it's been it's been patchy I mean our knowledge of it has been patchy and I'm sure that um that um, a, a website devoted to this would, in fact, could, in fact, be quite valuable if people contributed to it. Because it's mm-hmm. very... It's If you if you fall into the Puranas, you, you're in danger of drowning. It's like winning the Mahabharata. Mm-hmm. You can never get out of it. And um, mm-hmm. with someone of my age who forgets things, I mean, you try and remember... Um, Look, if we looked at the Padma Purana, four volumes for about 500 pages each in Sanskrit, it's impossible to remember the whole thing. Motilal has done a long, in this same series as this Brahma Bhavarata Purana was published, Motilal has done a translation of the Padma Purana, which is very useful. But um, there were projects in India that had titles like a social um, social and political material in the Marakandeya Purana, social and political material in the Brahma Purana. These are quite useful, but they're essentially paraphrases of the material that is found in, in, in the Puranas. Um, but the Puranas are very important texts because, as you know, they occur in vernacular forms and they've given rise to the, to the Genre called Mahatmya on upon which you've worked extensively, and it's these Mahatmyas that give inspiration, I think, to miniature painting, but also can be recited at a particular location because most of them are, are centered on 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 locations. The occasional ones on a deity like this Vinayaka Mahatmya and the Devi Mahatmya, but they can be they have the benefit of being short, which means people can people can read them. Um, and remember them from beginning to end. So, all of that I think is is, is fundamentally important. I think our big issue, a big problem, of course, with all of classical Sanskrit literature is how did, apart from the commentators, who, people who commented upon it, and some Puranas have been commented upon, like the Bhagavata Purana and the Vishnu and um, the Linga, how did the Pantas, how did the majority of the population? who were Hindu devotees, receive and understand this material. That's still very difficult. I mean, McComas Taylor has worked on this in the Vishnu Purana, Beth Rollman to some extent with the text on Gujarat that, that Mahatma, she worked on. Um, but, but if we had a much better understanding of how the text was received by devotees who were not, spent, not trained in Sanskrit literature, which would mean 95% of them, 98% of them, we'd have a much better understanding of the purpose of these piranhas. And in fact, um, how they contributed to the devotional life of the people.
1: Fascinating. The the final question I'll ask today, Greg, is um, um, certainly you're still quite productive. So what now, what next, what are you currently working on?
0: I'm working on, a lot of lots of fictional nonsense, short stories, and so forth. But mainly, I'm working on a text I've been working on for ten years on arguing that the Mahabharata was partly composed because of the material success of Buddhism. Buddhism, from the period of Ashoka onwards, if if not earlier, had developed itself as an important religious social institution. It, by the top, beginning of the Common Era. It, was, it attracted a large amounts of money, um, and it involved itself in <clears throat> local economies. Julia Shaw, a London archaeologist, has shown this dealing with Sanchi. It involved itself with local economies, created jobs, and brought money in. And I think the Brahmins, who were being forced to reconstruct their own identity, in the, from about 300 BC onwards, because the economy was expanding, urbanisation was was developing and so forth. They developed the Varana theory or consolidated the Varana theory, which had existed before it, um, as a means of placing themselves at the top of a hierarchy and deriving an income without necessarily possessing property. The Buddhist texts show that there were very wealthy brahmins who possessed property, and we know this from the Mahabharata as well. So I'm up, I'm trying to look at the Mahabharata in its much broader context than simply staying within the text and and and, and looking at what it's about. My guru, the French woman Madeleine Biardot, her final work was a two-volume work about 800 pages, and she tends she's also interested in in the Buddhist. Influence, but he doesn't look at the archaeological material. And as I was originally trained as an economist, all of this comes back to me. But anyway, that's what I've been working on and it's driving me insane. It really is. There's so much material on it. Where do you start? Where do you end? How do you know you're right? How do you know you're wrong? But it's typical of scholarship, that's what it's about.
1: Well, it's, it it is indeed typical, but it it takes a, a seasoned and humble scholar such as yourself to admit there's much that we don't know, and and the the beauty is that the messy work of groping about and seeing what we find. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's uh, I had the good fortune of looking at the outline for you had shared it in Dubrovnik I think I have still have it in my in my files here, and uh, it's an it's an ambitious project, not just in its thesis but in its scope. Or a number of chapters mm. and perhaps me yeah. will be divided into uh, a couple of books who knows but it is a fascinating so. concept and yep. and the the idea of just as um pis and detectives have to follow the money perhaps <laughs> historians <laughs> historians of South Asia I <laughs> Indian religions are also wise to follow the money and see who is paying for what
0: absolutely absolutely
1: excellent well thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today
0: thanks very much Raj we'll see you again sure okay right bye bye for now Yep. bye for now i'll go
1: for those listening we have been speaking with uh, dr greg bailey of love Trobe university on um brand new translation of the ganesha kanda the ganesha chapter of uh, the brahma vaivarta purana uh until next time keep well keep listening keep reading and uh keep contemplating the great elephant headed deity ganesha take care